0: And hi and welcome to the Jonathan Strange and Mr Norrell podcast. Episode 1: History versus mystery. And by mystery we mean fiction because it's very mysterious. <laughs> <laughs> have we have we just started the podcast? We might have. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm Sam and my co-host is Sarah. Hello. Yeah. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about historical timelines, fictional timelines, what happens in the book versus what happens in real history, which is surprisingly similar most of the time. Yeah, it's very
0: difficult to pick the strands apart, but that's what we're going to attempt to do in this episode.
1: Yeah. So first, Sarah is going to talk about history during John Usglass's reign and the history connected to that. And then we'll both be talking about the period of history during which the book is set. So the revival of English magic, which corresponds with with the end of the Georgian period and the start of Regency era. And after that, we'll talk about the Napoleonic Wars, which were quite important at the time for almost everyone in Europe and further
0: Yes, it, we, we're we not going to start at the start of the book, I mean, what's that? 827, no 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 no, we're going to go way way back to 1110, which was when in the book it is recorded that a mysterious army appeared in the north near Newcastle, and they invaded the north, took all the cities, blah blah blah. And then we have in Christmas 1110, Starnus Glass sits down with the king at the time, who was indeed King Henry, and that, that is that is actually what happened. And then they negotiate. Janus Glass starts his three hundred plus year reign in in eleven eleven, which is a wonderful year. Like eleven eleven, I'm never going to forget that. <laughs> um, but it's 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 worth mentioning that kind of after that period, there was quite a lot of conflict in the southern English throne. So about five or six years after Janus Glass takes the north, um, and he takes all the land between the Tweed and the Trent. You know what? That's a useless fact. Why do we care about that? Whatever, <laughs> keep it out. Whatever. Interestingly, the king that succeeded King Henry was called King Stephen, which <laughs> I, I was like, <clears throat> I yeah. And well, yeah, he was. He wasn't. He was a bit of. A d- to be honest, he was. He wasn't a very nice king. But other so, uh, things that tie in very neatly with um, the John of Glass story is. Is plus claimed to be the son of an aristocratic Norman family who had been granted lands in the north of England by William the Conqueror. And this was this was indeed a thing that William the Conqueror did. All the lords that fought with him at the Battle of Hastings got a whole load of land in England to sort of reward them and also to plant people who supported him in the country that he'd just conquered. Mm. So that like that is a very legit thing. Um also a very common tactic all through history, oh, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So i I started thinking about this and like looking into Norman aristocratic families who had been given lands in the north of England. Um, and I came up with there was one person that caught my eye kind of because of Harry Potter. <laughs> um, there was a guy whose name was William Peverell cause uh-huh, yes Potter. yes, um, and he was one of the supporters of William the Conqueror, and he got lands in Derbyshire and Nottinghamshire which are just north of the Trent. They, they would have been at the bottom of the northern England that John Glass seized, apparently in recompense for what happened. Oh yes, um, his father got murdered and he was like, I want revenge, kind of. No one really knows what happened. Yeah.
1: Makes lots of people's lives miserable. Yeah. <laughs> but in
0: 1111, England was divided. So, that thus began John Oosglas' reign of over 300 years in 1111. Um, and just skip forward to 300 years. Oosglas disappeared in 1443. And just think about the sort of witch-burning period of English history. Mm. That started about 50, 60 years after that. Yeah. Which, in, in my head, is about... Well... I think in my head, about 50 or 60 years is enough time for people to kind of forget how awesome and amazing the Raven King was and for little bits of sort of seeds of suspicion to come in and for people to start going, Oh no, magic bird! So yeah, that, that's a good I, point. I, I
1: think that ties in quite well. Do they ever mention in the book anything about witch hunts? Or... I, don't, I don't think so. Yeah. They don't in the series. I mean, far per, I per, perhaps...
0: Remember. Perhaps they never happened, but yeah. but if they did,
1: the, ta- the time timing- the study of magic is still generally accepted by the time yeah. the book begins. So it's not that suspicious or that frowned upon, really. And, and like I'm sort of wondering,
0: like, in the period of like the not Orient, Argentines, like that, maybe all the like, the witch burnings didn't happen. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's a little bit of nasty history that Susanna Clarke has erased. Yeah. So back to our regularly scheduled
1: programming and aka the normal timeline of the book. So the revival of English magic takes place between 1807 and 1817, the beginning of which is still during the reign of King George III, so the Georgian period and he he became quite ill at one point abdicated more or less and after that very quickly became completely insane and that's the start of the regency period where his son and he had 15 children did you know that what 15 children six daughters and nine sons i think get off well, yeah, I suppose because
0: it's mentioned in the book that Strange is approached by this horde of King George's children who are
1: like, Do this for our father. See, that would have been fun if that would if that had been in the series. <laughs> <laughs> like they all come clamoring. But, up wasn't. To them. but yes, but... <laughs> fifteen children, very surprised. And apparently he was very, very protective of them.
0: Aww. So he
1: he his Ultimate daughters is Well, that... kinda, but it but he 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 went too far, really. He he kept his daughters secluded more or less, and very few of them were married before their forties, which was really old at the time. Oh, because they were all sort
0: of locked in towers and castles. All oh, right, okay.
1: Well, Windsor Castle, I think it was. So it's not too bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. And then his sons. Well, that was the problem with the Prince Regent, who you know. Theoretically, he ruled in King George's stead. In reality, the government mostly determined policy because... Ye- yeah, because he was the one that built Brighton Pavilion. Yes. Okay, and he was very like- ostentatious and, and liked spending money and had massive parties yeah. and have you ever, have you ever influenced been to fashion and Pavilion? things.
0: No, I haven't. It's it's like, it's mad. It's a complete party house. And, <laughs> um, Go. It's it's worth the like fiver or whatever it takes to get in. So, Sarah recommends you all visit Brighton Pavilion then. <laughs> yeah. Get to Brighton, get ice cream,
1: party. That sounds good. In I the like style of Yay. the Regent. Well, that would probably be too expensive. But that was one of the things I read about. Is that the Prince Regent? He kind of rebelled against his dad because his dad was too protective and too mm-hmm. domineering, perhaps. So that was a rebellious phase, more or less. I know yeah, I know a few kids like that. Or a few roommates. Normally yeah,
0: <laughs> like go off to uni and go nuts.
1: It's all good fun. But this period, so the Regency period, I think I already mentioned something about him influencing fashion. But this the Regency was a very good period for culture in general. Just not just fashion, but art, architecture, all these things. And it was a, a period of massive you know, social, political, and economic change, but also negatively. Because the impression you get off a lot of fiction, like Jane Austen yeah. and all those stories. Like and, you say, Regency,
0: I think Austen.
1: Exactly, and I think most people do. And Footnote one. Oh, I have to say, a lot, we know a lot of people will probably know a lot of what we're talking about already, because we're quite starting at quite basic level of knowledge but we're just assuming not everyone's from england not everyone's been interested in history not everyone will remember everything so you know we hope there's something interesting in this podcast for everyone i mean like we didn't know half the stuff we're talking
0: about until last week
1: yeah or till today
0: (laughs) 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 there's a lot of fun research going on here
1: so that those all give an image of upper class society Mm. specifically and then i think last week Last week, last episode, I mentioned north and south as well. And then you get a bit more of the downside of the period as well, that it, it was massively stratified. So things might have been good for the upper class. They had culture and you know, refinement, education, accomplishments, all these things. But Great for... biscuits. Yeah. <laughs> Cakes. Um, but for the lower classes, things were a lot worse because you had... Uh, because there was a population boom at the time. So there were more and more people. But at the same time, you had the start of industrial changes. So you had textile factories and, and places like that.
0: Yeah. And think like in the, in the factories, a lot of the workers were children of like from as young as eight.
1: Yeah. Even. And the working and conditions were terrible, terrible great. conditions. Yeah. And then at the same time as all this, you also had the Napoleonic Wars going on. So that's massive economic pressure, and which is not a good thing for people who have less money, obviously. Uh? Chaos. Where do we begin? (laughs) (laughs) So there were technological advances that made life better for some. So printing, for example, because we've already talked about Jane Austen. Pride and Prejudice was published in 1813, which is during the period of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell as well. And that's because uh, printing had been around uh, the the Gutenberg press was invented about 1440, so printing had been around for quite a while, but there's still advances in that. And then by 1800, you had a cast iron printing press, which... It would have
0: been wooden before then,
1: yeah? Yeah, so that improved matters. And so you had novels, you had newspapers, and all these things but even then the newspapers and and literacy was still more an upper class thing mm. especially uh, because until 1814 printing presses weren't particularly quick but then they invented the steam printing press and the times newspaper also mentioned in the book because that's you know where uh that's where segundus writes to to talk about the miracles of york they bought the first one they printed their newspapers on that so suddenly a lot more newspapers and other things can be printed efficiently quickly so newspapers and everything else become available to a wider audience yeah i think i think it's
0: worth mentioning john murray at the moment um because like john murray is in the books as the publisher of the *Tales yeah. of English Magic* Strange's book, I think actually second is *Life of Jonathan Strange*. Um, but he, he was a real person and he published all of Lord Byron's stuff. Um, he's actually like mentioned in some Byron's poems. Like I was reading *Don Juan*, and he, there was like a verse that mentioned John Murray. I was like, um, <laughs> and he might have done Austen as well. I'm not sure about that, but. Think about it. Byron, that's that's pretty radical. So John Murray would have been right up Jonathan Strange's street. Yeah. And up, definitely up for a bit of
1: magic. And that's another thing. Strange writes his review of the Friends of English magic to the Edinburgh Review. And you think, mm-hmm. Edinburgh, why? But the Edinburgh Review was became a very influential... Magazine at the time, and they promoted romanticism. So they were all for this stuff. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I read that the Edinburgh Review was the main sort of platform for the Whig Party. Yeah. Now I get confused because, like, are the Whigs? Did they were they more left wing? Because I get confused about this. I because there was the Tories and the Whigs. Yes, and I thought they were the same thing for like ages, but um. Yeah, they were on opposite sides of
1: British politics yeah. at that time. Yeah. These review magazines, especially the Edinburgh Review was a literary and political review, so it, it meshed these things.
0: Yeah, talking about the printing press, um, Industrial Revolution, I think it's a good place to move on to the Luddites. Yes. Or, as they were known in the book, the Johannites. Johann referring to John, as in John Isklas. And this is a topic suggested by Entraisod. Uh, to our Tumblr. They mentioned that the Luddites were named for Ned Ludd, who was this mythical figure, King Ludd, King of the Luddites. Who Ned Ludd was, he was sort of a guy who reputedly smashed a loom, or maybe it was a spinning machine. Like, he was kind of the first person to go, no, I will not have this machine stealing my work. Oh yeah, I should probably explain what the Luddites were doing.
1: Sam, would you like to do this? Several things we just mentioned already came together. So, you yeah, had the population rise, you had economic difficulties because of the Napoleonic Wars, and yeah, unpleasant working conditions in the textile mills, and so on. So, beginning in 1811, they started well, it, it was an uprising that started in the north of England or M- Midlands, north of England. So, Nottinghamshire, then it spread to Yorkshire and Lancashire where they didn't just destroy industry, machines and buildings sometimes. They even ended up fighting with the army quite a lot, which is... Yeah, because the government sort of sent troops north to quell this yeah, rebellion. which is, is very impressive. And they, they practiced maneuvers and things like that at night. And it only eventually ended because the government instituted very harsh punishment so you could actually get executed and deported if you were involved with this so it's quite bad mm. mm-hmm. so that, that's in yes. our universe
0: but in the, in the Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell world, they have the Johannites and their leader is the Raven King.
1: Well they and say their is... leader is the Raven King if the Raven King agrees is another matter entirely <laughs> <No>,
0: that <it's... laughs>
1: <laughs> they have elected the Raven King as their leader,
0: whether he knows it or not. Um, and this this is the time of the return of English magic. Right it's sort in of, the middle of I it. don't know. Like maybe maybe the Yohanites did have magicians in their midst to unleash terrible magics on the English military sent north to quell them. Maybe maybe they quelled the English military instead. Maybe they caused terrible havoc on the. Political system at the time, I does Does the book, I mean, the book sort of glosses over that. Yeah, they're mentioned, but, but there's not much information given at all. Yeah. But having John Osglass as their leader, and he was a real person, he had, can I mention that uh, 1811 is exactly 700 years after John <laughs> Ousglass's taking of the north of England for himself? And I think that him as a leader, I just did
1: air quotes, compared to Ned Ludd, who was kind of Mm, might have been a person who mm, did something whose name was taken to stand for this movement. He might have not been for entirely and then became this mythical leader figure.
0: Mm. <laughs> yeah. But like, you know, Jonas glass literally was wandering around the mirrors of Yorkshire in, in 1816. And I think that the Johannites' motivation and movement would have been much, much stronger than the Luddites and there would have been a far greater threat to industry in the mm. north of England and so I think that Mr. Norrell's kind of dismissal of them should be taken a lot more seriously than if but it was we just all know
1: Mr. Norrell doesn't even read the paper so <laughs> <laughs> no, they never read papers even the Luddites they they were impressive already if you get added even more motivation to that and potentially magic
0: <laughs> yeah, I just like to think that they like had magic and, or had someone who could do magic and like magicked a sewing machine to pieces or something. <laughs> like I'm just thinking of like a spinning machine and it just starts
1: growing. I don't know. It could be, it could be yeah. so
0: cool. I want to know. I want to. I yeah, want to. But that would that
1: would have probably been mentioned in the book, right? If magic yeah. had happened openly and people knew about it.
0: Because yeah. well. The the luddite rebellions or slash, well, well the luddite the luddite rebellions anyway sort of were quelled by eighteen
1: fourteen. I don't know.
0: Well, at any, I remember reading it and thinking that they sort of ended before the mass return of English magic in sort of September yeah. eighteen sixteen, whenever Strange was doing his thing in the nearly said Vienna, Venice. So it kind of petered out before the mass chaos that was caused by that because I can imagine if they'd overlapped then the country would have probably good point, yes <laughs> but I, we didn't really say much about the motives behind the Luddites slash Johannites. this really the industrial revolution because prior to about I suppose, well we're sort of talking about the industrial revolution now but prior to about seventeen. Eighty sixty, I think, seventeen sixty is an official date given for the start of the Industrial Revolution. Even though apparently it had its roots in the sixteenth century, <clears throat> anyway. But prior to about like, seventeen sixty, things were made at home for people at home. That was like the main mode of yeah. production. But, and, like each worker sort of worked. There was like cottages, and they. To sort of have made stuff at home for a more local market, but I mean in the industrial revolution, suddenly they were they were irrelevant because everything was being made by machines and factories, and all that they like their livelihoods were being yeah. destroyed by these spinning new spinning machines, these new looms, the stuff like the fly
1: shuttle, and then they had to become dependent on others for income and
0: yeah yeah um the whole, the whole social class shift, this widening of the gap between rich and poor was rooted in the Industrial Revolution. So that was one of the causes of their upset. I think I more or less got that.
1: Yes, that's good. It's a lot more complicated yeah, well, uh, than that. Yeah. But, uh, We've wow. only got time to do things globally.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: We're probably generalising things horribly.
0: Um. But yeah, any comments...
1: <laughs> You know where to find us on Tumblr
0: or email? (laughs) jsamnpodcast at gmail.com or
1: jsamnpodcast.tumblr.com That's us. Yep, there you have it. Come and bitch about our historical (laughs) inaccuracy. Now our story starts in 1807 and that is also the year that slave trade was made illegal in the British Empire. That didn't quite mean that slavery was illegal. That didn't happen until 1833, when slavery itself was actually made illegal throughout the empire. But before that, in 1772, slavery became to be seen as contrary to common law, which means that, in effect, what Stephen says in the book, that no man may be a slave while he stands on British soil was only um really true since 1772 which was 35 years before so still it is really quite recent
0: yeah i still can't believe it It was 1807 that's only like 200 years like what the (sighs) well i'm sure we'll i'm sure we'll get to this in another episode um other things that happened was that i didn't know that the american declaration of independence was 1776 that's 30-40 years before a story starts, it's kind of like, America is this, like, her nation that's like, we are free! I don't I don't actually know anything about American history. Also, there was, like, the 1812 war, which I only know because, like, of the, isn't that the, the Tchaikovsky one? The one that's got the cannons in it? Yeah? Or something. So that was a, a thing that was happening, but I don't think it's ever mentioned in the book or the series. More development from 1812 was the Highland Clearances, which was where up in the Highlands of Scotland, all the crofters and the farmers who were living on the Highlands just got shipped off to New Zealand and kicked out of their land so that the whoever owned the land could farm sheep on it, and because apparently sheep made more economic sense to keep on land than uh, people. So yeah, there was a lot of turbulence in and around the entire world, not just Britain, France, the Peninsular War, the... Before we talk about the Napoleonic Wars do you want to mention the enlightenment yes uh, i think i think the enlightenment is very important in context of the book because of mr norrell's obsession with being modern and british and like being this is modern magic um which i kind of see as a as a hangover from the views that were blossoming in the enlightenment which is all about like reason and sort of casting off the shackles of the past, kind of. I've probably got that completely wrong. But I think it is relevant to mention that in the middle of the 18th century, probably just before Mr. Narl was born, he was probably born at the end of the Enlightenment, I mean, we don't know how old he is, um, and he would have grown up with this attitude of kind of progress and modernisation. Yeah. New magic being better change. and more rational. Yeah, and I suppose the Britishness comes from, again around this time, colonialism was becoming a thing. And a constant state of war, really. Yeah, so Britishness was, it was very, that kind of sort of bulldog mentality of, this is mine. This is how
1: things are done.
0: Yeah. It's standing your ground. Yeah, that's a good point. Which leads into the Napoleonic
1: Wars. Yeah. Connections. So, for the Napoleonic Wars, yeah. more or less this follows on to the French Revolution, which happened in 1789. And it was a combination of factors, really, that caused it. So you had the neighbouring countries to France, as well as Britain, who formed a coalition against France, because they were quite... I think mostly, mostly it was fear, because Britain saw a loss of control in Europe because of the revolution that happened. It's quite scary that the upper classes and uh, the monarchy and and things would have been deposed more or less. Rune of Terror? Yeah, and what if that started to spread and happened elsewhere and oh my god changing having to change See, I know
0: this because of watching the Scarlet Pimpernel
1: Yeah (laughs) The one from like the 60s It's so good. good. It's on YouTube You should find it I uh, used to watch that when I was a kid <gasps> <laughs> but y- you had that and Br- Britain, All there was also a loss of power in Europe a loss of control over markets and economy because, especially when Napoleon became ruler of France and had a lot of successes early on spreading out his control that's a scary thing so eventually Britain in 1803 declared war on France because they took issue with Napoleon attacking Switzerland, I think it was.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I think uh, I read that statistically Napoleon fought about 64 battles in mm. his lifetime and
1: lost like four of them. Yeah, It was, it was ridiculous. He or was... like oh shit man he he also had control of a lot of people so he drafted a lot of people for for his armies and then overwhelmed opposing forces and he he did that throughout the wars he tried to separate other nations and and other armies and then destroyed them one by one not letting them group and that's eventually how he lost Mm. the allied forces managed to group and then smash him at Waterloo more or less
0: Waterloo (laughs)
1: We're not there yet. Hold on to that thought.
0: (laughs) Cut me out because we're on separate channels. You can like literally just cut me out. Uh huh.
1: (laughs) I was also in the wrong key, tragically. Anyway, but so Napoleon became ruler of France, and then even later crowned himself emperor in eighteen (sighs) o four. Life goals. Yay. So this was when Britain had already uh, declared war. And then a couple of years later, after drawn out fighting, Britain actually attempted to come to a peace treaty with France, which then failed because both parties had certain stipulations and neither of them wanted to concede to what the other wanted exactly. So that failed. And then just this low intensity land warfare continued, but this w- this didn't just involve British soldiers because it, it, this was on the continent. So they also paid soldiers from other countries. So it was a very international war, but not, you know, massive big battles all the time. It was very drawn out. Mm. And Britain had some advantages because they weren't on the continent, so couldn't be attacked that easily. They had a really powerful navy. Ah, and- oh, the navy. Exactly. And industrial power, again, you're talking about the rise of industry, they got a lot of power from that. But they weren't too strong on land, and the French opposition was too big they got drafted people from everywhere. And that is also one of the reasons why they blockade, in 1806, I believe, they the British blockaded French ports. Cause they're part of economic warfare, trying to limit, the resources France had but then France was on the European continent plenty resources there and France also tried to blockade the British kind of embargoed the British but then the British started trading with nations further abroad as well so they didn't have much of an effect but that is also one of the reasons why in Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell you get the rain ships and the rain mm-hmm. ship blockade and in the book they're a bit more clear about that they blockaded lots of different ports on yeah, you know, the French
0: uh, yeah, coast. Yeah, because like in the TV, it was like
1: it was Brest, which I can say Brett, but I don't know how to say it. I don't know. It was Brest. It was I don't know. <laughs> booby, and that was a, a, an important port. And if you go to Brest, by the way, you they've you, still got the uh, this massive castle that's been used throughout time, and they've kept on building bits on it, and it's, it's quite interesting to see you get lit, lots of different types of. Uh, fortified architecture so if you're ever there, go see that that's cool, that's fun
0: (laughs) so, site recognition so far, Brighton Pavilion and Brest
1: Castle Mm, Brest Castle but uh, yip 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 Ah. silly sounds happening Mm. now because I'm looking at my notes Mm -hmm. oh my god, because when did the rain ships happen exactly Yes, the rain ships happened in
0: 1807. Okay. Uh, so it and that, uh, that would have been just before the start of the Peninsular War? Yes. So Mr. Mr. norles involved in 1807, which, because that was one of the first, uh, well, practically the first thing he did, which convinced the British government that he could be useful magically. Yeah. Yep. And then it was a while after that they went, ooh, let's send him to the peninsula. Well, it was
1: actually quite a while after that, because between, um, so our story starts in um, 1807 and yeah, with the rain ships, but it wasn't actually until... Because Strange went out to the peninsula in 1811. Yeah, so it's a couple of years after. And the Peninsula War, that did start in 1807, so it's the same year as the rain ships happened. And that's when um, French and Spanish armies invaded Portugal. And that's what started it. But in 1808, France actually turned on Spain because there was a rebellion in Spain and the control there got quite fractured and there was infighting and things. And so that's when France attacked Spain to gain control again, more or less. And Portuguese and British forces retook Portugal. And then for a lot of the Peninsular War, because this was in 1808, for a lot of the Peninsular War, they were based in Portugal and fought back from there. And then you also had Spanish forces joining the British and the Portuguese. And you had different clashes and, and guerrilla warfare going on as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Because like, guerra, guerrilla, guerrilla, it's little war.
0: Yeah. It makes sense. I know. <laughs> and this, so,
1: this is, this is when. Wellington comes on the scene. Yes, or because Wellesley, Wellesley, or the Duke of Wellington, he was the commander of the British army then, so he, he was the one planning and organizing a lot of this stuff. But there was a really long stalemate. So from 1807 to 1812, uh, this, this kept going about the same pace. You know, uh-huh. Low-intensity yeah. fighting and, and that kind of thing. But in 1812, Napoleon took a lot of his armies in France to Russia to go fight the Russians and that's when Wellington cannily re-intensified his campaigns and won quite a few victories because then the French were depleted, they couldn't get, eventually they couldn't get more soldiers from France because they'd all gone off to Russia so they had to make do with who was already in Spain and Portugal at the time and that is also the time when Strange arrives, eighteen twelve. So that's he arrives right when Wellington is kind of gaining ground as well. Yeah.
0: And like I wanna I wanna mention the lines here. Mm. Um I was looking up about the lines, Wellington's on the lines, I was like, what are the lines? <laughs> what does that um, mean? The lines were this series of forts kind of dotted in well, lines around Lisbon to protect it from the sort of coming back of um, Spanish and French forces, but what is interesting about them and is recorded about them is that they practically appeared overnight. Ooh, ooh! But that kind of doesn't work with the book because strange arrives after the lines are built, so you know. Yeah, had nothing to do with their building, but I that that is another thing that caught my eye. But yeah, the the peninsula War, it was chaos. And like in the book, you have all this details about strangers just moving bits of the land around and shuffling pieces of Portugal, swapping them with other pieces of Portugal, and apparently the landscape was never quite the same since. And like the war there was oddly neat. enough, <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: and it just fits in so well with the overall chaos. But in in the book he did manage to move the forest, didn't he? And in the series he didn't. Yeah. Yeah, yeah
0: that's that's a discrepancy that I was kind of I did appreciate them putting it in to the TV series. It
1: created more tension and showed you know,
0: And it it made stress. well
1: it made war a lot more warlike. Mm. And on that topic, what you do see in this also other TV series and novels and things that they never really depict how bad wars can get because you've got Sharp with Sean Bean and that's set in The Peninsula War as well Yeah, but even in that war is awful but it's not they don't depict it as quite as horrifying as it got that was a good suggestion by one of our listeners Prof Dr Lachfinger and she said to look at depictions of war by the artist Goya, which is yes. G-O-Y-A.
0: Oh, yeah. I'm like, everyone knows Goya. Oh, my God. Um, no, but, they yeah, don't. Not, not everyone <laughs> does know Goya. But, like, because Goya in the book famously paints Strange as being haunted by Neapolitan dead that he's raised. Um, yeah, And he, like, the, the well-known painting of his from the Peninsular War is the... Ugh, Fourth of May, I think I don't know if that's the exact date, but you'll know it because it's got this sort of Christ-like figure in white, just with arms outstretched, being shot by sp- Spanish soldiers, and that sort of that sacrifice of this sort of martyr-like guy that really kicked off a lot of violence in the Peninsular War at the time, and yeah, yeah, he's done well. Coya is just very well known for being horrible and yeah because you've got this other series called
1: the disasters of war and had a look at it and i go look at it if you want to see what it could have been like but on the other hand don't if you don't like violence and and really quite horrible horrible images of what people can do to each other and nudity so warnings for that but other than that it's it's quite a Striking set of images.
0: He's so, fun, yeah, it's
1: always fantastic at etchings and prints as well. Yeah. So Strange is in the peninsula from 1812 until 1814, which is when Wellington eventually gained the upper hand and actually invaded France all the way from Portugal. Yeah, because he
0: scuttled over the Pyrenees and.
1: Yeah. And that's when Strange got to go home.
0: I don't think, like, in the TV series, you don't get a sense that he spent three years in the peninsula. Not at all, it's, not at all. It's kind of like, he goes out, goes through some shit and gets home. Yeah. And... But he was but actually like, well, there for
1: years going through more of that all the
0: time. Yeah. Which definitely, like, sort of explains or, like, Arabella's reaction to him coming home. Like, that's not that's not the reaction of someone whose husband's been away for six months.
1: Well he was at war, even if it was for six months, yeah, but and yeah. it makes even worse what Norrell did keeping their letters from them for years, or well we don't know exactly when he started, but we can assume it years, I guess oh, that. yeah, so yeah, there's that, yeah. but until i actually
0: until I watched Jonathan stranger mr Marl, i I thought that the Napoleonic Wars were just sort of one fluid set of wars. I like I didn't know that Napoleon, Napoleon had been defeated and then there would be the 100 days and he'd come back. Yeah. Like it feels like Napoleon the
1: sequel. He's back bigger, faster, stronger. Can they defeat him? <laughs> but in the meantime, in between the next bit of war as you Napoleon said Napoleon and Napoleon the sequel. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it was also 1814 right after Strange got back that Strange and Norrell were asked to look at the king again because of his insanity and his worried kids.
0: Oh, I just I just love the moment when in the TV series they're standing in the hallway to the king and they both have their medals on and there's a, one point that Norrell glances over sees that Strange has two or three medals and then sort of looks down a bit... Sadly, at his own single medal. Oh, I hadn't even noticed that. It's, oh. it's, I noticed it in about the third rewatch. <laughs>
1: as you do, as you do. <laughs> because, um, yeah, after that, in 1815, war started again when Napoleon escaped. Because he'd been, <laughs> after his defeat, he'd been imprisoned in Elba. But he escaped, and he escaped in March which we'll come back to later, and then marched up to Paris, gaining followers along the way, deposed the restored king that the Allied forces put on the throne again, drafted armies, and then attacked Belgium preemptively just to stop the coalitions from forming again. So he basically wanted to hammer through everything before he'd get large enough opposition, really.
0: It's also impressive, like very decisive. <laughs> he he was a just being able to gather that all, all all the armies and all the followers in that amount
1: of time. Yeah, and that was a problem for for the coalition for the allied forces because they they had to do the same, but they were already a bit late. So you had Wellington in Belgium, and that's where Strange got sent as well. As soon as the war started, sent to Belgium to join. Wellington and they had to try and join up with other armies and especially Prussia because they had a lot of people and Napoleon tried really hard to stop that from happening but in the end just before Waterloo he failed and that's why Waterloo became the victory for the British and the allied armies because they managed to join up through Lots of other fighting and Wellington holding up under a lot of attack. They came together and defeated Napoleon
0: at Waterloo. So yes, it's time to talk about Waterloo. Ooh-hoo. My my research for this included watching i just sort of looking up documentaries and there's a really good Waterloo documentary narrated by Sean Bean and oh, hey. it's a great because he just sits on his lap at Waterloo they used these muskets and all this happened and the holding of the gate at Yugemont and it's like and you've got Sean Bean's beautiful <laughs> Yorkshire voice like talking you through the details of Waterloo and I'm like oh. I, 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 would, I would recommend that if you can find it
1: recommendation number three four i don't know
0: where we're well, at well the two the two previous recommendations were places to go yeah okay although i, d- I did recommend scarlet pimpernel, yes, pimpernel you did. earlier yep so that would be media recommendation number two yes. from me also sharp so that's oh, number yeah.
1: three from me yeah
0: and <laughs> actually sharp dude um because sean bean played sharp that was like the reason he wanted to do the documentary yep like and Sharp is set in the
1: Peninsula during the Peninsular War. Hmm. So, some more background for you if you want to watch that. I quite enjoyed it. Yeah,
0: but 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 Waterloo. Um, like that, my first um, exposure to Waterloo was reading the book, and like I I had like no idea what happened before I read it, and just reading about, or and just watching the doc- documentary. And Sean Bean is like, and the rain before Waterloo. And I was like, oh, the rain. I know who made that rain. It was Jonathan Strange that made the rain. And I think the, she also mentions that a lot of confusion on the part of the French army. Which is, you know, because of Jonathan Strange sitting there, moving bits of the land around. Of course, of Obviously. course, yes, yes. That's exactly what happened <laughs> in the real world um and the other other bits after 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 watching the documentary and then going back and watching the start of episode f- 5 where they pan over the battlefield um mm. that pan is very historically accurate with the the battle formations and what was going on in the battle oh that's good so, kudos to the bbc oh, hey <laughs> Shall I go on about Waterloo? Yeah, I get... sure. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. Go ahead. Um, other other historical accuracies that are well, this is more in the TV series because in the TV series they they show Strange holding this courtyardy thing, which was an actual thing that happened in Waterloo. They had this little kind of farmhouse in the middle of the battlefield, which. Wellington was like, right, we gotta take that and hold it because it's the most strategically important thing on this battlefield. Um, so that was the court at what was it called?' It was a farmhouse called Hugomont. and yeah they they got stormed by the French like few times during the battle and I think they got defeated once and managed to retake it and it was all very exciting. But one of the things that I did briefly read, Was that some of the French men attacking Hugumon had battle axes? Ooh,
1: hey,
0: yeah, Yeah. and I I couldn't find like a proper source for that, so I don't know how true it is. But it, it, like, could be interesting. It was represented in the BBC series. (laughs) So again, good to them for representing Waterloo.
1: Well, after Waterloo ended, that didn't quite mean the end of the war yet because Napoleon. Mm managed to retreat to Paris but the French were demoralised he didn't get as much support as he wanted anymore and in the end he more or less gave himself up another
0: fun fact is that um, Napoleon was apparently like really ill during the Battle of Waterloo mm. which no one knew about until like a hundred years later like, he had terrible like bowel problems and nausea and it's like how do you win a battle when you're <laughs> really sick <laughs> Oh dear. But it
1: was kind of the end for him. Yeah. Because he, he abdicated and then was imprisoned again and eventually died. Sad. Yeah, well. A lot well, of bad if- things happened because of him. So, it, it, well, I was going to
0: say it's sad if you're Lord Baron who worshipped Napoleon basically. Mm. And, but, and it, I really sort of it staggers me to think how much magic would have changed warfare. Because I mean, you see, in, you see in the book how hard Napoleon tried to get his magicians, and I think he got like conned by like three different people who were like, "I'm a magician," and like, blah, 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 stuff happened. It was interesting, but just the use of magic and how sort of powerful Strange was, and, like in Waterloo, he was crushing people in these mud hands. Like in the in the TV series, it was one mud hand. In the book, there was like. Just like twenty of them. Yeah. Like he sort of. That's kind of bit gruesome. nuts, and but I don't. I don't know if he actually killed those people in the book. That that escapes my memory. Yeah. But I mean, sort of in the nineteenth century. I mean, Britain were the world power. I mean, they owned half the world, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And just to kind of imagine. Mostly because of the navy. Yeah. Because another fun fact is the reason that Ireland has very few trees is because Britain stole them all to make our their navy. <laughs> Give us our trees back. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, just imagine this powerful colonial Britain with magic as well. Hmm. Like kind of scary thought. Yeah, it's a scary thought. Those bastards. Damn that Jonathan Strange and
1: Mr Norrell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cuz how much does the book mention about magic in other countries?
0: Yeah, like, well, they mentioned Scotland and Ireland to some extent. Mm. But not really the rest of the world. This could
1: be a good topic for the next podcast. Magic? You want to talk about the year without a summer? I don't know anything about that. Me neither. And it's, it's 18... 1816? That's when... Because he, Strange, returns to London in 1816, and that's when he goes to Venice. Mm. Wasn't wasn't there?
0: There was like a, I can't remember where when I heard this, but like in the in the Middle Ages, there was like a small ice age for a few years. Yeah, and I, I can't I can't remember when that was, but that made me think of the that <laughs> that one time that the Raven King banished Winter for four years. <laughs> Um, because that's mentioned, and like he gets annoyed with winter, and like there's just no winter for four years, <laughs> and, and, and like that's actually what I thought you were on about when you said year
1: without a summer, and I was no, or, it's just event caused by the massive volcanic eruptions changing the climate, and you know you had the year without summer.
0: Oh, huh, interesting. And when did that come into the book? Because I, like, I'm like, i a bit of a skim reader and I must have missed it. I don't know where, it's just... Um... Wait, so the year without a summer was 1816? Yeah. That, that's a very pathetic fallacy because it's like, when did Arabella die? Ah. Like, was it Jan-
1: January 1816? Strange returns to London in February, so right after that. So it's
0: like Arabella dies and all the sunshine is sucked out of Jonathan Strange's world? Yeah. I kind of feel like God. he's a powerful enough magician that his depression would cause summer to not come.
1: Arabella dies December
0: 1815 and then Strange spends it is about 6 months
1: sort of moping around and then getting his novel published. He finishes the book, yeah, in June, published in August, but Strange starts travelling in yeah, in June right after he finishes the book. Yeah, which he which he
0: says is about like a few weeks behind Lord Byron, which is that is historical. Like Lord Byron sort of left the country in disgrace in about eighteen sixteen after having caused far too many scandals, yeah, <laughs> breaking too many young ladies' hearts. Yeah, that's that's mentioned in the in the TV series. Yeah, because of with Grace Steele, um, Miss Grace, Flora. Yeah, I think the line is like, "Don't go chasing any more poets now, darling," <laughs> which like doesn't. Happen in the book, or if it happens, I completely missed it. Mm. I did not think I, it's, I'm
1: not that far in the book.
0: I think it's quite a sort of clever addition, but yeah. And and back to Byron. Back to Byron. Um, in the book, it's also mentioned that um, Strange and Byron meet up, and they really don't get along the first time they meet up. And there's a there's a quote that says, like, because Byron is with like the other like the Romantic squad, like him, Shelley. Mary Shelley and um, like Paul Dory, and like they're the ones that famously had that competition to write the the Gothic horror. And then like Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein, Paul Dory wrote the Vampire, which is basically Byron fan fiction. I have no idea what Byron wrote, but yeah. Um, so there's a mention in the book of when Strange meets up with them. He goes, "Ugh, all they wanted me to talk about was vampires." <sighs> <laughs> and it's like this is this great wee nod to that incident and um, the sort of the their kind of obsession with the gothic and vampires actually another recommendation would be the Ken Russell film gothic which is really weird but worth a watch if you like Ken Russell <laughs> um, and yeah um, Byron did spend a few like quite a few months in Venice um, and in, in like the sort of the this this are my and in your universe that's because like well because of a woman he had a courtesan that he was enamoured with but i think in this case it was jonathan strange he was enamoured with because he suddenly became interesting (laughs) fun facts from the book okay and i
1: just read a bit on wikipedia because yeah wikipedia we don't use wikipedia here (sighs) not at all never i'll 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 actually read this out that's easier (laughs) In June 1816, incessant rainfall during that wet, ungenial summer forced Mary Shelley, John William Polidori and their friends to stay indoors at Villa Diodati, overlooking Lake Geneva for much of their Swiss holiday. They decided to have a contest to see who could write the scariest story, leading Shelley to write Frankenstein, or the modern Prometheus, and Lord Byron to write a fragment which Polidori later used as inspiration for the vampire. Uh, Hey! A precursor to Dracula. Dracula. In addition, Lord Byron was inspired to write a poem, Darkness, at the same time. (laughs) So hey, there you have it. So that pretty much comes
0: to the end of the story and concludes our interweaving and picking apart of historical and fictional timelines. Sorry if it's been a bit history heavy, but I found all this really interesting to read about and to look up and I never knew that historical economics was so fascinating. Like I wanna I wanna I feel like I'm gonna go after this and just be like, ooh, seventeenth century inflation. <laughs> <Ooh>. Fascinating. <laughs> yeah. So what what do you think we'll do next week?
1: Footnote two. And by next week we mean next time because though we might like to bring you a podcast a week, time will not allow for it. Do a magic episode. Yeah. Something something magic.
0: I mean we'll have to narrow it down a bit, but
1: we'll narrow it down a bit, but I th- I guess we could talk about uh, magic in the book and how it manifests itself. Because you've got quite mm-hmm. subtle magic and then you've got really, really massive boom waterships, yeah. sand horses kinda of magic.
0: Yeah. Ugh, I mean, I love the way in the TV finale you've got Jonathan Strange being this big drama queen <laughs> with like fireballs in the shape of his face. It's like, come on, yeah. man.
1: <laughs> Tone it down. Yeah. Although I feel like I would do the same. And then you've got Norrell's maze, which is much more intellectual. Amazing. And amazing. But not as in your face as Strange's faces. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was terrible but so yeah, we could talk about that and yeah, i mean if,
0: if anyone has any suggestions of what they would like to hear if they would like
1: to come on and speak about something at length yeah. that they are an expert in we well we, this is again history we could also talk a bit about the history of magic or perceptions of magic mm-hmm. and how that might tie in with book yeah. and such things. So yeah, if if you want to come on the podcast, we'd like to make this uh, more of a group discussion thing, because this is not a topic we're terribly familiar with. So if mm. any of you want to talk about magic with us, or even even if it's just very specific things, like we'd love to know more about tarot cards and, and the readings yeah. Childermass does. Because like, apparently
0: tarot cards and playing cards, like there wasn't a difference between them until like Probably Victorian times when everyone got really obsessed with the occult and stuff.
1: Mm. See, I know nothing. I know nothing at all about this. So, please help us out. Yeah. Contact <laughs> us on
0: podcast at gmail.com or scoot us and ask or, I don't actually know if we can do fan mail, on the Tumblr blog which is, again, jsamnpodcast.tumblr.com Yeah. So, Agony Uncles. Let's do Agony Uncles. What what, what submissions have we got from people for Drawlight and Sales? Do you want to read these out? Yes! Miss Mariette writes, Dear Mr. Drawlight and Lascelles, I have a problem that you may be able to advise me on. Many of my relatives are odious to spend time with, but I needs must remain in their good graces. Inheritance and so forth, I'm sure you understand. Do either of you have any advice for struggling through? Yours,
1: Miss Mariette. Mr. Drawlight writes, My dear Mariette, how fortunate you are. Disliking one's relatives is a frightfully common problem, but so few get to dislike relatives that will make them rich. Here is what you must do. Sit down and make a list of lovely things you will buy or other ways your life will improve after you have received your inheritance. Keep this list on you in a secret place, and when you are vexed by your relatives, excuse yourself. Retrieve the list... And attend to it. I am sure after reminding yourself of all you will, with any luck, shortly gain, that it will be easy to return to the presence of your family members in good spirits. That's
0: very good advice from Mr. Drollite. Yeah. And the next one <laughs> is submitted by Anonymous. And it says, to Mr. Drolite and Mr. Lascelles. Sirs, I have accepted a position which I am not entirely suited for, but which will set me up with a reasonable income. Have you any advice on how to fake competence long enough to learn the job? Furthermore, is it possible to do this without resorting to personal charm,
1: of which I have little? Oh dear. Mr. Lascelles writes, I applaud you on the skill it must have taken to procure such work to begin with. I imagine that you are wrong about having little charm, as you have deceived or distracted your employer in some way. My advice is this. Find someone in your workplace who is both competent and weak. Whether by stealth or by force, procure this person's work as your own. If you have chosen the correct target, they will be too timid to fight against you and will likely provide you with satisfactory work for some time, perhaps until you are in a position of authority over them. If you have not chosen the correct target, then I cannot help you for you are truly incompetent.
0: I'm always a little scared for my own safety after hearing Lascelles' advice. Yeah, same here, same here. He does terrify me.
1: Yeah. I do you still kind of love him, though? No. No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> ah, well, and that was it for our agony uncles, Drawlight and Lascelles.
0: So shall we now round up with a bit of music? What music have you
1: got for us this week? Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. It was completed in 1801, published the next year, and would still have been in circulation during the period that the book is set. And this recording was performed by the Bellini Ensemble Unique in 1924.